listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts left. The Lakers have two. Bryant. It's a shot! LeBron James with no regard for human life! Jordan. Oh! A spectacular move by Michael Jordan! And now, your hosts. Lauren Lee Chen, and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. The Denver Nuggets are easily one of the 2018-19 NBA season's best stories. In that spirit, Adam Matas of Denver Stiffs, Locked On Nuggets, and Altitude Sports Radio will shortly be making his second appearance on the NBA beat. This is Aaron Fishman. Behind a much improved defense and despite being hit by a rash of key injuries, Michael Malone and his squad have managed to retain the Western Conference's very best record. As of interview recording time on Thursday morning, the Nuggets stood at 24-11. Since, they added a gritty come-from-behind win in Sacramento to improve to 25-11, now one and a half games ahead of the Thunder and Warriors, and good for the league's third-best winning percentage. Adam will discuss 23-year-old center Nikola Jokic's brilliance, Denver's stingy D, IT's looming return, and a bunch else. Shall we get to that? But first, a fun and awfully telling stat from Adam's Twitter feed. With a strong finish to December, the Red Hot Nuggets have now turned in six straight months of winning basketball, dating back to February of last season, and they're already off to a 2-0 start this January. It's just me this episode as host, but I'm joined by Adam Matas to discuss the best in the West, Denver Nuggets. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thanks for having me back on. It's my pleasure. We've been trying to schedule this. I'm glad that the day has finally arrived. Denver started really strong. They're still doing well. I thought in the interim, maybe they'd fall out of the top spot with all those key injuries hitting, and they've just been really resilient. We're going to talk about how they've been bitten by the injury bug a little bit later and how they've been able to weather the storm, but the first thing I wanted to discuss is their defense. I know it's declined a little bit in recent weeks, but overall, it's still a very good, huge improvement from last season, and Coach Michael Malone is very relieved, according to some quotes I've heard from him. He's, of course, known as a defensive-minded coach. They've essentially brought back the same roster from last season. And and, um, under him, the first three years, they were really struggling on defense. I'm going to just read this quote by him quickly before I get to the question. Let's be honest. Our first three years to be in the bottom five of defense every year, for me, it's embarrassing. When you're known, hey, he's a defensive coach, and three years running, your bottom five. I have pride. We all have pride. <laughs> Very <laughs> memorable quote from him. Just yeah. most generally, defensively, where have the um, most important improvements come from? Well, I think the first thing is personnel. Uh, last year, they were without uh, Paul Millsap for most of the season. And when he did return to the lineup late in the year, I think late February, he was clearly not himself. He couldn't use his left hand to dribble, rebound, really was afraid of it getting hit or touched. So they, they basically 
add uh, an all defensive level type talent who happens to also, you know, be a great on court leader and, and somebody people follow. And because of that, the team has been able to just take it a little bit more seriously. They did make one little adjustment to their pick and roll scheme that I think has had a, sort of a trickle down effect. And that is last year they were dropping Nikola Jokic really deep in pick and rolls, sort of the way a Roy Hibbert would play, you know, just kind of standing in front of the hoop and, and contesting shots. Well, Jokic has no vertical. He's not a great rim deterrent or a scary guy around the rim. They're making him more aggressive, bringing him up higher in pick and rolls. He, I believe, leads the NBA in steals amongst centers. And so it's been a positive change. But the biggest thing is just Paul Millsap is back. And that guy, he's probably, I'm not saying he should win defensive player of the year, but he's a guy that should be in that conversation because when he's off the court, Denver's not good defensively. When he's on, they're one of the best in the NBA. I'm sure you saw the 538 piece on just how rare it is for teams with so much roster continuity to make such seismic leaps on the defensive end. And I get what you're saying, too, that the minutes um, were distributed differently with Millsap back healthy again. And these we'll, we'll talk about all the young guys who are playing very, very well, and they're getting a lot more minutes and more games of action. So the minute distribution is different, but... Pretty cool, though, still, how essentially the same team is back. And they were just pretty bad on defense last year and now just really performing well on that end. I I think, you know, Jokic has always been, and I've been the loudest guy about this. I have been laughed at for three years by saying Jokic is actually a good defender and can be, a you know, an anchor on a very good defensive team. And the reason I said that, well, first of all, because obviously I watch him, but he has these talents that are very... uh, you know, his quick hands, he's an elite rebounder. He can do all these different things. Positionally, he's just very smart. He's always, he's almost always out thinking his opponent. And last year, missing Paul Millsap and then also just sort of the coverage they had, I think made him maybe look worse than he is this year. He's been phenomenal, but then you look at the 2015 Warriors. If if I said, Oh, take Steph Curry off that team, the offense all of a sudden doesn't look good. And everybody would understand that they'd say, okay, well, yeah, of course you miss Steph Curry. We don't think about this defensively. Paul Millsap is Denver's Steph Curry on the defensive end. He has that type of impact. So to me, it's not, it's surprising that they were top five for so long. Um, but I, it's not surprising that they were an average or better than average defense because he's that type of player. Yeah, that makes sense. So going to the injuries, Injury after injury, yet they stay afloat and still number one in the West. So Will Barton, a lot of people forget about him. He's only played two games all season. Just such a, an instant score. He just gets so many points so quickly and efficiently. Millsap and, and Gary Harris had been out, and now they're just getting back healthy. Millsap's played a couple games. Gary Harris has been back for one as of recording time. How much longer do you think those guys will come off the bench? Is that just a very temporary thing? Um, and talk a little bit about the good problem that it is now that that all these guys who were contributing greatly when those guys were injured are, are now possibly going to see a reduction in their minutes. Well, I'm going to start with Will Barton, who is, is – I think Will Barton will be back on Saturday. That's just kind of my hunch. It could be that it goes another couple games, um, but I don't – I think within two weeks, certainly, he'll be back. But um, 
You mentioned him as a scorer, and that's true. He's 38% three-point shooter. He, uh, you know, he one-on-one type player. But the thing I like about him and the thing that I think this team has has sorely missed is he is the team's probably second best playmaker behind Nikola Jokic uh, off of the dribble. He's a great passer. Two years ago, him and Nikola Jokic were the number one pick and roll duo in the NBA uh, in terms of efficiency, which I think would nobody would have probably guessed. You'd think Chris Paul, DeAndre Jordan, some of those more classic pick and roll mm-hmm. duos. But Will Barton, just a really, really good passer, scorer, one-on-one playmaker, and Denver has missed that. Jamal Murray, I think, is a great shooter. He's much better off ball, but in Will Barton's absence, Jamal Murray has been forced to be more of a traditional point guard, and as a result, I think he struggled a little bit with his shot and with some of his scoring uh, and decision-making. So he's a, I think he's a sneaky, underrated loss for Denver, and that they've made it this far as the number one seed without him is, I just think, incredibly encouraging. But to your second point about bringing guys back, Denver has weathered the storm really well. In large part because Nikola Jokic, I think, is just that good of a player. He's the one piece that you can't lose. And you lose all those other guys, you still have a great, great player in him. But now that you bring these guys back, I do think Denver's next four or five games probably get a little rocky. They have some tough competition. But reintegrating guys who have missed that much time, you're always taking a step back before you take a step forward. Yeah, I think it would be, as I said, overall a good problem to have definitely just with all the benefits you get, it just, as you alluded to, maybe a little bit rocky in the short term. Like Aaron Gomez has been so good. He was playing yeah. 33 minutes per game in December. <laughs> and so you'd think that, that that would decline, right? With most well, and, and then he has to adjust to a new role too. So it's a mm-hmm. double-edged sword. One, you've got to reintegrate guys who have missed, you know, one or two months and th- there's that rust. But then you've got guys who have gotten into a nice flow playing 25, 30 minutes and now they've got to get down to 12, 15 where they're only in for short stretches twice a game. Uh, so there's a lot of adjustments, I think, on the horizon for Denver. But as you said, that's one of those good problems. I mean, Gary Harris, a great player. Paul Millsap, a great player. Will Barton, a great player. So mm-hmm. e- even though you take your lumps. But the one guy, and maybe you want to save this for a little bit later, Isaiah Thomas uh, allegedly looming somewhere on the horizon. And he's the one guy who has never played on this roster and whose role on this roster, I think, is not very clear. So he's one guy that I don't know yeah. if it's just a matter of a week or two of it being rocky. It just might not be a good fit. I mean, who knows? Yeah, since you brought him up, I think we should talk about him now because he's such an unknown commodity with this team. We know what he can do when he's in the right fit, but it seems like there's so many question marks. In my opinion, they don't need him. They're just so good right now, yeah. and they have um, so many different areas covered, but... I mean, they signed him for a reason, and he can be really good when he's in the right system. Do you think that that'll be a a situation where they can't really be too patient if he's not really able to be that successful without having the ball in his hands a lot? Because it seems like it could really be disruptive if, if it doesn't go well, but they go all in on that experiment. Well, I think this team is, and Michael Malone, the front office, they're all aligned in this is Jokic's team. I mean, he's the most important player. He's the best player. And no matter how many great players you put around him, the team is always better when they play through him. So I think everybody is, after four years, is is very much on the same page there. So if it's up to Isaiah Thomas to sort of figure out how to play alongside him. That being said, I think he... uh 
I, I think he's a better passer and off-ball player than he gets credit for. At least he was when fully healthy. And mm-hmm. he played alongside Al Horford and uh, was an MVP candidate. Um, so there is, in theory, a role that he could play a, a, and play at a high level. The problem is the guy he's replacing, Monte Morris, in his second season – has just been so good that it's hard to imagine. And that second unit as a whole for Denver has been so good that it's hard to imagine it being better. Uh, it would be, even if it was different, it's hard to imagine it being better. Yeah. It's really interesting to think about. And just a, a very quick follow-up, Michael Porter jr. Do we just pretty much have no idea the timetable for him right now? They're just being really patient. Yeah, very patient, but I, I think we know it's not this year. Um, okay. he, he's almost certainly going to take a redshirt year. Yeah, I'm really curious to see his um, long-term ceiling. I know that it's really tough when a young guy's had all those back surgeries, but he's he just seems like an interesting player. So good. Well, I'll, well, I'll tell you, age. I watch him in practice because he, he doesn't do like contact drills or anything like that, but he does all of his shooting drills. And the guy has an absolutely beautiful shot. Uh, he's taller than you think. I mean, I bet 6'10", 6'11". I mean, he's a really, really tall guy. And his shot is just so pretty and, and it, he just never misses. So uh, he was such a good off the dribble player and one-on-one scorer and, and all-around player. And that's the part, who knows if that comes back. But just mm-hmm. as a spot-up shooter, a 6'10", 6'11", spot-up shooter, I think that that could be his floor if he can be healthy enough to be on the court. Yeah, I've seen some videos on Twitter posted of him just hitting shot after shot. How do you block that too? (laughs) If he's healthy and on the court, that'll be it. So the team is just so well-rounded, as I alluded to before. Top 10, top 9 actually right now in in both offensive and defensive rating, um, which is a really good sign for a team. I'd just like you to, I know it's really early and the West is loaded and so much can change between now and the end of the year, but just to help me assess the playoff ceiling. And also, if you think it's unfair, the lofty expectations that are being built among the fan base and others, sure. or is the talent legitimate enough to where you think it's it's fair? Well, the thing about the NBA is it's not just about talent. I mean, there's experience, there's you know drive, there's toughness, mm-hmm. uh, overcoming adversity, all that stuff. But what we do know and what I think the regular season is best for fleshing out is just who the talented teams are. And Denver, I mean, people don't recognize this, and it's fine. I mean, Denver, like I said, Denver is going to have to prove themselves in the playoffs before they get anybody's sort of adulation. But Denver is the number one seed in the Western Conference. They've had a relatively tough schedule. They've beaten Toronto twice. They've beaten Oklahoma City twice, including once at their building, once in Denver, down three starters. Uh, they've beaten the Lakers. They've beaten just so many Portland and Portland. They've beaten so many good teams in big games. Uh, and they've done it with only having their healthy roster for about well, really, they're a full healthy roster for one game. Will Barton went down in, I think, the second quarter of the second game. So the fact that they've been able to do this shorthanded, I think they are – I tell people this all the time, and, and I don't care how crazy it sounds. They are probably the second, third, or fourth most talented team in the NBA just when you talk about their top ten guys. And, and so how does that translate to playoff success? I think that's really, really tough to say. There's some teams that – you know. They do almost feel like last year's Raptors where they could win 60 games, but you're still going to take LeBron in a playoff series no matter what. (laughs) Um, So there's still a bunch of teams like that um, and a bunch of questions they'll have to answer in the postseason. But just on raw talent, this team doesn't just beat 
you know, good teams, there's there's games where they just outclass them from from opening tip to the final buzzer. Outside of Paul Millsap, the core is young, young yeah. players who are very good, get better every season. You look at their record from season to season, it's the win total has improved four straight seasons from 30 to 33 to 40 to 46. And so I guess a skeptic could say, maybe this is just the best that they'll be. But that doesn't seem realistic. It seems like they're on the upswing and that they keep getting better. And you said, you're right, they're going to have to prove it through playoff success before they get the adulation. But I think all indications so far appear to suggest that they're on the upswing. And and, uh, until I see a a decline, I'm going to expect them to keep getting better. There is no reason to suspect otherwise. There's no reason to think that this team, which, as you mentioned, they're the second youngest team in the NBA. There's no reason to think that they won't continue to get better. They've gotten better every single year on a pretty steep curve. Uh, Jamal Murray on the season right now is shooting 32% from the three-point line. We know he's an elite three-point shooter. He's just gotten off to a slow start. Gary Harris is shooting 32% from the three-point line. He shot over 40 the last three seasons. Um, Jokic is even down with his three-point shot. So to me, I look at this team and I think, if anything, all the indicators are that they have a, a much higher gear in them. Not only do they get guys back and healthy, but some of their best three-point shooters have been in a season-long slump and they've still managed to win. And the last piece I'll say to this, and anybody that sort of is familiar with my work knows where I stand on this, if Jokic was in LA or New York, we would be talking about the Hall of Fame level career he has had so far. This guy is absolutely ridiculous. 18 points, 10 rebounds, seven and a half assists. He's not that far off from averaging a triple double from the center position with assists. And it's not the raw numbers are impressive. The advanced numbers are even better. No matter who you put him out on the court with, the the, the offense just hums and plays great. And that has been the case for four seasons. So to me, there's very few, if any, indicators that this team is playing above themselves. Every indicator is that they actually have another gear in them. Just out of curiosity, the pace, even though it's it's slightly improved relative to the rest of the league, it's um, dipped a lot. Yeah, they're twenty tied for twenty sixth now in the league, so pretty slow pace compared to all the other teams in the NBA. Do you think that is a conscious decision at all from yes. the coaches? Okay. No, not from the coaches. The players. The, the, you know, one of the cool things about the the Nuggets, and over the last three years, they have been at their best. The less involved the coaching staff has been on the offense on a per-possession basis. They don't call plays. They read and react just like Golden State does. They, they play a read and react style of basketball that relies on a great deal of unselfishness and trust amongst the players because – any player just hijacks possessions when the less structure there is, the more likely that is to happen. But because they are led by Nikola Jokic, who does not care about scoring any points, and he's gone games with only taking one, two, three shots because he just literally does not care about points, because they're able to just be such a high IQ team and play through him like that, their offense is very unpredictable and hard to guard, but it's very slow-paced because it's a patient offense. They get fast breaks you know, if they can score in the first four seconds or whatever, they'll, they'll get out and run. But in the half court, they're just what makes them work is they get seven, eight, nine passes in a possession and they just wear a team down until they get wide open looks. And and that's what makes their offense so good. And that's also what makes their pace so slow. Even after made shots or after missed shots, they get a defensive rebound. They have the second slowest 
or, or second lo- longest time of possession following defensive rebounds. I mean, they get out and run the break, but they just don't shoot until they're open. And it's such a discipline to them in the half court. And that's what makes them such a great half court team. Yeah, they play such a pretty game. And I think a misconception, popular one, is that the slower the pace, the more boring it is to watch. Right. But <laughs> I just, I love to see all the ball movement. I found a lot of pretty cool telling stats. One of my favorite ones is Denver's um, made field goals. 65.8% of those have been um, assisted. That's best in the NBA. Yeah. Um, last season, they ranked seventh in that category at 61.7. So when you look at assist percentage and assist to turnover ratio, they were at or near the top 10 in those categories last season. But now they're elite, even more elite in those areas and they're better than golden state in both of those two, which I think is yeah. really telling. They're a better passing team and golden state's a better shooting team because of their top three shooters. But after that, I mean, Denver's fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh and eighth best shooter is, is on par or better than any other team in the league. I mean, you're talking about Juancho Hernan Gomez. He's the seventh guy. He's a 40 plus percent three point shooter. Malik Beasley, 40 plus percent three point shooter. I mean, they just have so many different weapons that they're always spacing the floor really, really, really well. And then they are the number one passing team in the NBA, both statistically, the metrics that you just pointed out, bared out. But you mentioned seventh last year in assist percentage first this year. There has been a battle for sort of the soul of the Nuggets over the last three seasons as they've kind of worked to refine their identity. And the last, I don't know, six weeks, seven weeks of the season last year, Jokic really kind of finally took the reins. I think it was a, a everybody knew he was the best player, but there was sort of the psychological um, hurdle for him to get over to where he said, you know what, Paul Millsap, four, four-time All-Star, but this is my team. And ever since that moment, Denver has played the style that you've talked about, this pass-happy style led by him. And I think that number, they're going to be the number one team in assist percentage, I think, for several years going forward. You started the Jokic praise party a little earlier. I want to continue <laughs> it. We have, it's just fun I can, talking I can about do it, it for an hour, so we're, we're good. I got lots of material. <laughs> good. I, I have a good Bill Walton quote I want to read. I'm sure oh, yes. you've heard oh. it. Oh, yes. <laughs> Bill Walton can be hyperbolic, and um, I think <laughs> he compared him. To, yeah, I think he compared him to Gandhi and Nelson Mandela too. Yeah. Um, but um, and Bob naturally, Dylan, but, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> here's part of the quote I really liked. In a game that has been taken over by incessant dribbling for yourself, Nikola Jokic is such a breath of fresh air, and it's his imagination. Watching him play basketball is like watching Bob Dylan come up with a song. That was uh, The Athletic. They got that quote. Charles Barkley, we've heard, has uh, been glowing in his praise for Nikola Jokic for some time now. I mean, it's so obvious, though, when you watch him play, his passing is amazing. Um, you've been talking about on Twitter, too, and in your podcast, his case for MVP. You're not saying that he's the favorite for MVP right now, but right. just just go through the main arguments for that and why it's just such a promising time for him and his career. Well, first, I want to go back to the Bill Walton quote because he you Please. left out my favorite part, which was he says, when you watch Nikola Jokic play, you feel good about life. You feel that good was, about the world. Yeah. You believe that tomorrow is worth fighting for. <laughs> I love that too. And and then you're talking about peripheral vision too. Yeah. When we drive a car or a bike, we don't really have very much peripheral vision. Well, Jokic <laughs> has so much of it and we need more peripheral vision in the world. <laughs> kind of love Bill Walton. All time. 
Timer quote from him. Uh, <laughs> you know, my thing here's my thing with Jokic and sort of it's not I don't I don't feel like it's a crusade. It's just sort of the way that the 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 gift that I think he is bringing to the NBA, so to speak, is that we talk about so many things, including the MVP, along these very archaic pointless uh we, we put every that, that conversation in a very pointless box and oh well he's not dominant enough as this or that or he's not the type of guy you feel you throw the ball into and play through him in the final second and and it's why is this the barometer for success for an mvp somebody on twitter the other day said to me mvps don't have games where they only take one shot so i looked at it magic johnson in 1987 had two games with one shot in 1988 had had one game with it 1989 four games with one shot so there there is precedent for these types of things to happen in the past but for whatever reason we 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 think that an MVP has to look like James Harden where the ball's in their hand for the entire possession and they hit a step back three at the buzzer. And that's an MVP. What Jokic does. And again, I don't think he's the MVP, but I think that he provides us an opportunity to talk about what's actually valuable in basketball and what's actually valuable in basketball in 2019, which I think the game is in a very unique and interesting place. And what he does, the, the the impact he has on every single possession, his ability to do when the team needs him to score, he scores 40 points. When the team needs him to pass, he gets 17 assists from the center position. Um, it's amazing. Uh, centers in the last 20 years, only four times has a center had 15 or more assists. All four of them are Nikola Jokic. I mean, this guy is absolutely yeah. absurd. And, and so that's my whole point when I when I point these things out is not to say he should be the MVP just that we need to talk about all the things that you discount him for those are actually features not bugs yeah totally I think as fans as reporters as MVP voters they and we need to just change our reference point realize the game has changed so much right this is a a big man who's one of the best passers in the game not just for his position just overall and he just impacts the game in, in such a unique way. And with, with teams throwing doubles at him, it doesn't really make sense a lot of the time for him to force something. If he can find his teammates who are just impeccable shooters on the outside and, and beat you that way, then he's going to do it. And uh, more to the point, he almost never makes the the wrong read in that. And that's what's so funny is, you know, he has one thing you can say about one of the negatives you can put at him is he does go through these sort of emotional slumps. I think less so this year. There's only been one stretch of about four games where he seemed to be playing in protest for something. Um, but, you know, for the most part, he just reads the court so well. And if a team sends hard doubles and some teams just say, all right, we're not going to let him score. We're going to try to do whatever. He never panics. He is one of the most calm and collected players when a team double teams him uh, that I've ever watched, and he just punishes them with the pass, and he'll have 15 assists. If teams don't do that and they just say, okay, we're going to stay home, and a lot of teams have done this, uh, he'll just go down to the post and, and, and feast. And mm-hmm. there's a really funny clip I posted on Twitter a, a couple of months back when they played Toronto, which Toronto's strategy against him was, okay, we're not going to help. We're not going to let all these other guys get off and going. And you see the coaching staff saying, telling all the shooters, stay put, stay put, nobody double. And Jokic gives a dad, a total dad mover. It looks like a dad playing against his six-year-old son in the post. And I think it's Siakam who goes flying one direction for biting on a fake. And Jokic, without even jumping, just lays the ball into the, the hoop with nobody. And the entire coaching staff, you kind of see, just slink into their chairs like, all right, well, that plan didn't work. <laughs> it's, really, it's really funny. Yeah. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more show. 
I'm Bill Allen. And I'm Gabe Allen. And we're here on the NBA Beat. I'm Harrison Fagan. I'm the editor-in-chief of Silver Screen and Roll, and you're listening to On the NBA Beat. You wrote an excellent piece on the fit or lack thereof between Trey Lyles and Jokic. Jokic is such a good player that everyone on his team is better when he's on the court, except Trey Lyles. And um, Trey Lyles has been pretty good, as you note, with Jokic off the court and vice versa, of course. But um, the net rating when they're paired together is negative 9.5. They're worse on offense and defense. I know Lyles is set to be a restricted free agent in the offseason. There's talk that they may consider trading him. But as you note, he's 6'10", 23, so many skills that he has. What do you think is going to happen with this situation? What should happen? Well, first of all, there's only been a handful of players that have not fit well next to Nikola Jokic. Uh, Emmanuel Moutier is one of them. Uh, Really the only one I can think of. And now Trey Lyles, sort of the second one. So I think you look at that and there has to be some level of concern about, okay, maybe Trey Lyles just isn't actually very good. Um, And then you look at his three-point percentage. I think if you play next to Jokic, the one thing you have to be able to do is you have to be able to finish, whether that's off of cuts, as a spot-up shooter, um, if you're a pick and roll player, just whatever, you have to be able to receive a pass and, and be able to finish finish the play. And Trey Lyles, not a very good three point shooter at all. He's shooting just 24% this year. I don't think that is sort of um, an aberration. I just don't think he's a good three point shooter. He shoots below 70% from the free throw line and has for his entire career. So he's not a good spot up guy. So then you think, okay. Well, what is he good as he good finisher at the rim? Not like a guy you stick in the dunker spot and just ask to have put back dunks or anything like that. He's not especially a great cutter. I don't think he's a very smart off ball player. So all of this adds up to a player that, okay, maybe he's just not a good fit. But what I'll say about Trey Lyles, he is sort of the last generation of or mini generation of bigs in that he's a power forward who could put the ball on, create off the dribble and kind of go one on one off the dribble, which is valuable. The problem is it's not more valuable than just playing through Jokic anyway. So mm-hmm. so why give him the ball and ask him to go one-on-one against a lumbering big when we know that offense, while good, is not as good as just giving it to Jokic and letting him operate? As we wind down, we really have to spend time on the key bench contributors. So to me, the biggest three are Monte Morris, Malik Beasley, and, and Juancho Hernan Gomez, all either 22 or 23. And then even Torrey Craig, second year forward, who's already 28. Uh, he started in the NBA late, yeah. but um, he put in some huge minutes in wins against OKC in Toronto yeah. and was six of 12 from three in those games. So just a couple of quick stats I just want to fire off. Those three that I mentioned, Morris, Beasley, and Hernan Gomez combined to play 73 and a half minutes per game compared to 29.1 combined last year <laughs> in much fewer games. Morris only played three games as a rookie, and Hernan Gomez only 25. And they're also hitting their threes like crazy. As you noted, yep. Jamal Murray's been struggling from the outside. The guys you think are normally going to hit threes at a really high clip are struggling, but these three are combined 42.4% accuracy <laughs> from three, and 10.6 attempts per game. I guess one, is that sustainable? But two, does it really have to be with guys coming back, getting healthier, and these guys just performing above and beyond what anyone could have imagined going into the season? 
I, I, first of all, I don't think they're playing from the shooting standpoint above their heads. Both Malik Beasley and Juancho Hernan Gomez are elite three-point shooters. That's what they came okay. into the league as. That was their MO. Um, uh-huh. Before any other skills, discernible skills, is okay, well, at least they're shooters. So Wancho, right. I think, has a season already under his belt at 44%. So the fact that he's back up there, I just think that's who he is. Malik Beasley has really been on a hot streak, and his his stroke just looks beautiful. They have um, – at Pepsi Center, they keep track of – your three-point percentage in practice. And Malik, with all the great shooters in Denver's roster, Malik Beasley actually currently holds the record this season for the best shooting performance. So I know he's an elite shooter. Monte Morris is the guy who reworked his shot over the summer. He was not known as a big three-point shooter. So he's the one guy that I think probably has run hot. But again, you know, he's, he, there's such a small sample size with him in the NBA that maybe this actually is who he is. He's such a reliable, fundamental player. Um, that he could be, but more to the point, And again, I'm being, I keep coming back to the same point, but it, I, I'm, and I know it's a bit annoying, but I just want to keep hammering it home. Emmanuel Moutier, his final season in Denver shot 37% from three here in Denver playing alongside Nikola Jokic. He went to New York. He shot 19% from the three point line <laughs> playing with Jokic just generates the best types of shots within the flow of the offense, especially from the three point line. They're set shots, spot up shots in rhythm in the flow of the game. And I just don't think it's a coincidence that so many players have come here and had great years. I, you look at another great example, Jameer Nelson, you look at all of his best years and it's very linear. You know, he entered his prime, had a couple prime years, then kind of slowly came out. Then all of a sudden he had this one year where he went back into his prime and it just so happened to be the year he played alongside Nikola Jokic. I know you're running low on time, so I'll let you go after one last question. I always enjoy talking to you. You're one of the smartest basketball writers covering the NBA right now. And it's just such a timely opportunity to talk about them. You're talking about the three-point shooters. Jamal Murray has typically started slow throughout his career, and then he's he's found his shooting stroke. Yeah. I forget he's only 21. He just seems yeah. like he's much older how long he's been in the league. Yeah, he's really been struggling, but I know he's been handling a, a lot of the, the point guard duties with the injuries. Are you concerned about him, or you think he'll figure it out going forward? Well, yeah. So he, you mentioned it, but he is one of the younger players. Uh, he's 21 years old, but three-year player. He came in really young. He's like Devin Booker. In fact, I think he's younger than Devin Booker is. Let's see. Yeah, he is. He's like a year younger than Devin Booker, which is crazy. Wow. Um, so he's a really, really young third-year player. Um, I, I just His shot, it's so weird because I know he's a good shooter, and he hasn't really been a great shooter consistently in his NBA career just yet. Um, but when I watch him in practice, he's an elite free throw shooter, which is usually a great indicator. I just know that that part of his game will come. And then on top of that, there's not a lot of players who have 40 point performances in him. He has two this season at, at his age 21 season. He has a 48 point game and a 46 point game. So I think for young players, especially we can overrate great games, but great games sort of show potential and and not every player's potential or ceiling is that high. So for me, he's a guy that I think is probably still a year or two away from really putting it all the pieces together, but he already has these moments where he just carries the team and is the best player on the court, and, and that's what's exciting yeah. about him. It has to be so frustrating and alternatively exhilarating watching him. He's just so streaky and inconsistent. Yeah. Yeah. So in the most recent four games as of recording time, this doesn't include Thursday night's game. 
he's had a nine point game and an eight point game <laughs> but right before the eight point game he went off for 46 points on nine of 11 shooting from three and that was when he was like at 20 percent or lower <laughs> like from the previous 10 games or something right <laughs> he just right. comes out nine for 11 from deep it's it's a really interesting phenomenon, but I have to remind myself he's 21, so the consistency might not be there yet. You can even look at it one for six, then one for eight, then four for seven, then nine for 11, then zero for three. So yeah, I mean, there's just no <laughs> rhythm. I mean, it's very, very up and down. But I do think yeah. my prediction for Will Barton, and I guess if there's like people that like to play fantasy or whatever here, when Will Barton returns, I think Jamal Murray shoots 40% from that point forward because Will Barton will take over so many of the pick and roll duties and so many of the playmaking duties that Jamal Murray will get to be in his natural spot, which is playing off ball and spotting up. Thanks so much, Adam. Really great job. Thanks for having me on. Always fun talking to you.